0: Uh, It is a blessing to be able to share with you this morning. It's also great. We had uh, some missionaries with us last week, uh, and it was great to see missionaries with us last week. It's great to see missionaries with us again this week. It's good to have Brian and Andrea with us, and I know that they were able to share in Sunday school today, and it is always a blessing to be able to hear how God is working on the mission field, and it is an exciting time. Jerry also mentioned that this afternoon we will be having a lunch that will take place at 12:45 and I know some of the folks who normally would be in this service have chosen to come to the second service just so they can stick around and automatically be here uh, that being said those of you who are here now I would just encourage you come back you will be glad that you did it'll be a great opportunity for us to uh, not only hear about the work that's going to be done but to be able to pray over those who will be going and also to be able to support the work financially uh, it is a free lunch but we we are hoping for donations, so please feel free to uh, donate when we do that today. So uh, that'll be about 1245. Uh, our chef today is actually the chef from Southern Wesleyan University, and he has come in and done a great job at Southern Wesleyan University, and uh, he will do a great job today. Actually, they've been working since yesterday trying to prepare food, uh, so it will be good. You will enjoy it, so please come back and be a part of it. Well, last week, because of our patriotic celebration, I didn't get to continue with the series on judges and Um, Today, we're going to pick back up. If you'll remember, uh, we've been studying through the book of Judges. We looked at individuals who perhaps we don't always talk about. If you remember, two weeks ago, I preached about Deborah. Uh, She is the only female judge that's named. She is an individual that you don't hear a whole lot about, um, but she is an incredibly significant individual. Today, I want us to talk about another judge, and this one is Gideon. Uh, The title of this message is All In with Gideon. Uh, the, The idea here is that Gideon was not all that different from you and me. But the reality is God had great plans for his life, and only when he would become all in could Gideon become a true world changer. Let me begin by asking a question. What is it that you are afraid of? I was looking this week at a list of different phobias that people would have, and uh, some of them are very common, some of them are, well, they're not very common. In fact, I think they're somewhat weird. Um, Some of us uh, struggle with nyctophobia, which is a fear of the dark. Uh, Acrophobia is a fear of heights. Those are common ones. One that most of us are familiar, arachnophobia, that's a fear of spiders. I had never heard of this as a specific phobia, but ophidiophobia is the fear of snakes. I think there are a lot of people in here who may have that one, you just didn't know what it was called. Um, Actually, then there are some weird ones too. Uh, There is one, it's, it's called octophobia, that is the fear of the number eight. I have absolutely no idea what that would look like. That would be a weird one. Um, there is one that is tocophobia, that is the fear of pregnant women. Uh, again, I have no idea what although actually, there are never mind, I'll stop. Uh, uh, and then there's one that is nomophobia, which is the fear of being without your cell phone now. I see some of you right now looking in your pocket to make sure you got it, so maybe that one's a real one. Um, There are a lot of things that people fear, and fear can be a very crippling thing. In fact, I want us to take a look at a man who is often known as a mighty warrior, yet he wasn't always so mighty. His story is found in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7, and it's Gideon, it's the story of Gideon in his case. His fear kept him from genuinely being all in with God's plan. I want you to look at a few verses with me. We're actually going to break it down as we go through this uh, uh, sermon. The entire, we're going to read a couple verses here, a couple verses there, instead of me just reading it all at once. So we're going to start in Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and 2. And it says this The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Now, here here we go again with the same story that seems to be repeated every time we look in the book of Judges. There is this endless cycle that the Israelites find themselves in. They experience God's blessing, and God does great things. They know the peace of God. He has given them a land. He has given them safety and security, and he says, all I want you to do is to worship me, and they do for a time, and then somewhere along the way, they let their guard down, and they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the consequence is God's hand of blessing is removed from them, and the next thing you know, they find themselves oppressed by a neighboring nation. On one occasion, we've looked already, it was an eight-year window, then there was a 30-year window, and here we have a seven-year window where they have had oppression at the hands of the Midianites. It's this cycle. They, They reach a point of frustration because it seems as though God's blessing is so far away, they cry out to the Lord for help. The Lord responds by sending a judge to come and to deliver them. And as the judge comes and delivers them, once again, they seek the Lord with faithfulness. And it lasts for a time. And then the cycle continues and it starts over again. And it just continues to go back and forth, back and forth, over and over again. Well, here we find the Israelites have disobeyed the Lord. They have done evil in the eyes of the Lord and now they have cried out, to God, as they have cried out to God, God once again hears their cry, and He is faithful to respond. Look in verse eleven as we see God preparing the next judge. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. To keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I don't want to bore you with too much detail here, but I do want you to realize why Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press doesn't make much sense. Now, there's there's a reason for it. He's not just doing it because he's just trying out something new. He's doing it because the Midianites had oppressed them so much that literally when they grew crops, if the Midianites knew they were there, they would come and they would destroy crops. They would camp out in the middle of their fields and destroy everything that was there, or they would steal the crops for themselves. So here he is, he's threshing wheat, he's basically trying to separate the wheat from the shaft. And as he's doing so, what they would do is they would throw it up in the air with the purpose of the, the shaft being blown away. And the wheat would come back down and it was sort of an easy way to be able to sort the, the good from the bad. But typically you would do that in an open area where there could be a nice breeze that would blow through. On this particular occasion, we're told that he's doing it in the wine press, which the wine press would not have been this open area, and there would have been no wind to blow through, which simply means this it would have been somewhat fruitless. So, why would he do it? Why would he be in the wine press trying to separate the wheat from the shaft? Here's the reason he was hiding. This was a young man who he wants so much to be able to feed his family and he knows that if he does it out in the open, they're going to find out what's going on and they will come and they will steal and they will destroy the the crops. So here he is, this young man, Gideon, is hiding as he separates the wheat from the chaff. This would have been the worst place to be able to separate the wheat, but it's exactly what he needed to do. We look at his lack of confidence as we continue in this story, verses 14 and 15. It says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. You know, there's a curious word, if you go back to the passage right before that, the very last phrase was, mighty warrior. Now we just talked about the fact that here he is, he is in hiding, trying to separate his wheat from the chaff. So here he is, he's afraid, he can't, was God mocking him when he referred to him as a mighty warrior? Actually, God was not mocking him, but clearly this was not yet a mighty warrior. We'll talk about what God was actually doing in just a moment, but clearly he was not yet a mighty warrior. Even when God tells him, now you go take what you have and you will save the Israelites. His response, how can I? I am the weakest and the weakest of clans. How can I be the one that would actually rescue my people? He is scared. He is insecure. Certainly, he wants to see Israel delivered from the Midianites. All of the Israelites wanted to see them delivered. But he can't imagine that God would use him to accomplish this task. Even when he starts to believe that God might do something great, something special here, he questions it a little. In fact, in verses 17 and verses 37 and then verse 39, we see Gideon testing God on three separate occasions. The first time, it's a simple, if you're real, stay here while I go and get a sacrifice and I'll bring it back to you. And it's it's almost this, I don't know that he's questioning God so much as he's questioning himself here. Am I just imagining this or is this real? Tell you what, if you're real, you stay here. I'm going to go get a sacrifice. I'm going to bring it back. And if you're still here, then I'll know that you were real. Then a little bit later in verse 37, we see him. He's being called to lead the people of Israel into battle. You're going to go and you're going to fight. And as you fight, I will give you the victory. And he basically gives this, Lord, I want to believe you. But I I just want to be sure that this is right. So tell you what, I'm going to lay out a fleece. And as I lay out this fleece, I'm going to leave it on the ground overnight. When I get up in the morning, I want the ground to be dry around my fleece. But I want the fleece to be wet from the dew. He gets up the next morning and the fleece is so wet that he's able to squeeze the dew out of the, the fleece. So much so that he fills up a bowl with water yet the ground is completely dry. I don't know, maybe at that point he's kind of thinking to himself, maybe I just made that too easy. So he says, God, I got one more test for you. I just want to make sure that I get this right. So what we're going to do this time, Lord, I'm going to ask you to make the fleece dry. Make everything else around it wet, but make the fleece dry. That's in verse 39. And of course, as he gets up the next morning, we find that it's exactly as he had asked. This was a man who God clearly sees something in him that maybe he doesn't yet see in himself. This is a man who in many ways, clearly he is not a mighty warrior, yet God described him in that way. I asked earlier, was God mocking him when he said that? The answer is absolutely not. Instead, God was simply looking beyond What Gideon was at the moment, and instead he saw what God would transform him into. You know, this ought to be one of the most encouraging parts of the message today. God looks upon us, and so often we identify ourselves by what we've done already. We identify ourselves by who we are today, and sometimes that's not a beautiful image. Yet God looks upon us and he says, I don't just see who you are today, but I see who you could be if you truly were surrendered to me. Understand that Gideon was just an ordinary individual, but when he would allow God to be the Lord, the master of everything in his life, he would become this mighty warrior that he was first referred to as. For each of us, we need to know that our God sees beyond our past. He sees not only who we are today, but where he wants to take us. Maybe your life has been marked with failures. Maybe there have been times where you've done things and you think to yourself, if other people knew it, oh, they would be so ashamed of who I am. I would be ashamed of who I am. God says, I know who you are and I know where you've been but I also know where I'm taking you. He begins his address with Gideon by referring to him as a mighty warrior. In Gideon's case, we would see his fear again as he begins his walk of obedience. It wasn't as if all of a sudden a a switch just flipped and suddenly he was no longer afraid. That was a part of who he was. He had plenty of fear in his life. Remember that they find themselves oppressed Because they have sinned, they have forsaken God, they've allowed the worship of other gods to creep into their life in the community. If that's what got you into this mess, if you're going to fix it, you probably ought to do something about all the false gods. Look what happens in verses 25 through 27. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Now, it's interesting here, the, the, the specific details that are given. Uh, first of all, okay, you've allowed the worship of Baal and Asherah as a part of your practice, as part of what got you into this mess, so you need to get rid of that. How long had they been oppressed? For seven years. We talked about that at the beginning. They've, they've dealt with this oppression for seven years, and I wonder, we're told that this second... Bull from the father's herd is seven years old. And I wonder how intentional God is. You know, God seven years earlier knew the oppression that they would face. And seven years earlier, God had already begun to prepare a sacrifice to help end this time of oppression. There's th- there are things that we will face every single day. And sometimes we are caught by surprise when those things happen, but God is never caught by surprise. And in this situation, seven years earlier, God had already prepared this bull that would serve as a sacrifice to help pave the way to be made new. Know that God is already working on your behalf for the things that you will face tomorrow. I don't know what they are. You don't know what they are, but God knows and he is already working on your behalf to prepare you for that. What a blessing this is. That I know it seems like a really insignificant detail there, but think about it for a minute. God already knew 7 years earlier what was going to take place. We see here that he is afraid to do what God calls him to do, but he's willing to do it. He's afraid to do it during the daytime But in spite of his fear, something has changed in Gideon. When he is first addressed as a mighty warrior and told that he will do it, his question is, how can I do it? I am the least of the least tribe. Yet here, he hears God's voice. And in spite of the fact that fear may be present, there is something else that is present. It is that spirit of obedience. His obedience will triumph over his fear. Let me suggest to you that at this point, Gideon makes the decision to be all in. And by the way, chapter 7 would reveal that Gideon wasn't the only one who wasn't all in prior to this moment. God tells Gideon in chapter 7 that he's got too many soldiers. He he gets ready to lead the people into battle. They've got 32,000 soldiers. And as they prepare for battle, they're somewhat excited, sort of. I'm sure Gideon had to think to himself, I can't believe this many people showed up to fight alongside me. 32,000 of them show up and God looks and he says, yeah, you have too many warriors. You're going to have to send some home. And on two separate occasions, he will sort them out. The first, he addresses them basically with this statement, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. Anyone who your fear is greater than your spirit of obedience, you go home. 20,000 soldiers would turn around and go home. Now, remember they started with 32,000, so you just lost over half of your army before you even go into battle. Can you imagine almost this sense of, oh God, what are you doing to me? that Gideon had to experience. We just went from 32,000 troops to 12,000 troops. I don't know. I guess, I guess it's okay. I guess we can still take them with 12,000 troops. God says, actually, I think you still got too many. So this is what I want you to do. And, and he basically divides them once more, this time by the way they drink their water. And by the time he's done, there are 300 soldiers. I'll tell you the truth. It's easy to obey God when you know you have 32,000 troops standing behind you. When you know that in following God's lead, you've got all these other people who are going to be on the same page. But what happens when you look and you just lost 31,700 soldiers? It becomes a little more difficult to obey God in that moment. But Gideon was all in, regardless of how many soldiers went with him. I honestly believe that if Gideon had sorted through the way God wanted him to there, and they came down with 10 soldiers, Gideon would have said, okay, let's go. Because he knew that God was the one who was all powerful, not the soldiers behind him. In fact, that's the whole reason why God wants to sort them out in the first place. He tells them there in chapter 7, if you were to go into battle with your 32,000, you would basically assume that you were the one who did this. But I don't want you to receive credit for it. I want you to know that it is God who has brought the deliverance for you. Gideon was all in, but he was surrounded by a group of people who they too were fearful. Imagine being the 300 young men who were all in going into battle against thousands of troops, yet knowing that their God would deliver them. You know, all of the 32,000 could have said they were all in, but it's easy again to be all in when you know you've got the other side outnumbered. Those 300 had to be all in, and they believed it. I think there are a lot of us who are a lot like the young Gideon that we see described here. We have good intentions, and we believe that God wants to do great things. We'd love to see a mighty move of God, but we're not really all that invested in it. In other words, if it happens, good. If it doesn't happen, well, we'll get by. What would happen if we truly trusted in God with everything? What would happen if we chose obedience over fear? What would happen if we were really all in for Jesus Christ? Last week, we celebrated our nation's forefathers who were all in for freedom. Many of them giving their lives for the cause. Many were all in against slavery, risking their lives for people that they never knew. Athletes, they're all in for a championship Sacrificing time and energy and relationships, believing that it will all be worth it in the end. The examples could go on and on, but what does it look like to be all in in regard to our Christian faith? Ironically, most of us would probably say that we are all in on our Christian faith, but are we really? If you're all in on Christ, which of the following things should be important in your life? And if the Scriptures call us to all these things, yet we don't do them all, can we truly say that we are all in? Weekly church attendance. Do not forsake the gathering together of the believers. Well, that's what the Scripture says, but God doesn't really mean we have to go to church. He doesn't mean that we have to be with other believers, does He? Well, if you're all in, yeah, actually he probably does. Serving in the local church, serving in the local community. Tithing. Oh, we don't talk about tithing because it makes us uncomfortable. Pastors can talk about just about anything they want, but don't talk about money. Tithing. Scriptures call us to give a tenth of everything that we have. If you really want to get technical, in the New Testament it goes a little further and it says to give generously, which means the tenth is not... The maximum that you give, but rather it is the minimum that you give. To give generously means to give beyond that. But I I give 20 bucks on Sunday. That counts. Does it? If you're all in, that means we do it the way God calls us to do it. Supporting missions, local missions, overseas missions. We're called to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost That's local ministry. That's overseas ministry and everywhere in between. You say, well, but I give money on Sunday morning. Does that count? I don't know. Is that enough? All in means all in. Holy, moral living. Living as those who have been redeemed. Not just saying a prayer, but actually living as those who have been transformed helping fight against social injustice, intentionally mentoring the next generation, basically discipleship. The reality is, all-in is typically a lot more than what we have made it out to be. I have one more all-in question. What if we were genuinely all-in in our pursuit of reaching those who are lost around us? Yesterday, while we were at district conference, there was a video clip that was shown, and I want you to see this video clip this morning. The movie is about an individual who was all in. His name was Desmond Doss. He was notable as a soldier who didn't believe in killing. He was considered a conscientious observer. But when a battle took place at Hacksaw Ridge, this weaponless soldier stepped up in a mighty way. The movie suggests that he single-handedly would rescue more than a hundred soldiers on that day. He would estimate that number to be only about 60 soldiers. Either way, it's a pretty good day. I want you to watch a clip from that movie. Hold still now. I got you. Hold tight. There you go. Try now, try now. I thought it was I was blind. Keep it down. Can you walk? Oh. You no. gotta get out of here. Okay? Come on. We got you. We got you. Right it's me. It's Devon. i fix you up. Please, Lord, help me get one, Lord. Imagine what it would be like if the body of Christ worked with such passion that they could not stop when they reached that point that physically they could give no more and all they could say was, Lord, help me get one more. Help me to reach one more. We live in a world full of dying people. We live in a world full of people who are destined for hell. And if we were all in for Christ, then we could not stop with just reaching one person for him. Lord, help me get one more. Fast forward to the New Testament today. It's not just the Israelites that are oppressed, but all of humanity that is paying the price for sin. God has set up a sacrificial system to provide for the forgiveness of that sin, but it is a never-ending cycle. There's always another sacrifice required. So Jesus, the creator of all humanity, enters as a human being. He lives and he breathes as an example to all of humanity. He does good things, he teaches great things, and he helps an awful lot of people. But that's not why he came. You see, Jesus came as one who was all in. He came to give his life for us. Today we celebrate the fact that Jesus was all in. When he could have silenced the crowds who cried crucify him, he chose to remain silent. When he could have called 10,000 angels to come and take him down from the cross, he simply remained. He gave his life for you and for me because it wasn't about saving one or even 12 disciples. But it was about saving all of humanity. You see, he was all in. There's a story that's told of a chicken and a pig as they were preparing breakfast for their owner. The chicken gladly gave his portion to the owner. He provided eggs. The pig, for him to provide breakfast for his owner, he had to provide his life. One could be a part of the process. One had to be all in on the process. Jesus Christ didn't come just to lay an egg. Jesus came to pay the price for us so that we could actually have eternal life. So we could be that one more. I don't know about you, but I know for me that God had bigger plans for my life than for me to just be like everybody else. I believe God has the same for you. Gideon had good intentions all along the way. Gideon was a man who he wanted the same things all the other Israelites wanted. He wanted to be free. He wanted to be able to overcome the Midianites. He wanted things to be made right. But only when he was willing to say, okay, God, I'm all in, would God do a great and mighty work in him. I believe God wants to do a great and mighty work in every one of us here today, but we must be all in to make that happen. One more, just one more. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for us, and today we will celebrate his sacrifice as we participate in what's called the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm going to invite people to come. We're going to pray specifically. Uh, for this process, I want to encourage you for a moment as we participate in this. Communion is a privilege for us. So the Lord's Supper is a privilege for us as we celebrate the work that Christ did. But at the same time, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on the impact of that sacrifice. You know, it's one thing to say that somebody did something nice for you. Do you understand what the sacrifice of Christ should mean to you? The reality is we were all sinners destined for hell, but because of what Jesus Christ did, because he sacrificed himself, we are all given the opportunity to be made holy and righteous, to have our sins forgiven and to have our eternal destination completely changed. Today, we celebrate that. But it also gives us an opportunity to maybe even evaluate our own hearts, Maybe there are some things in us that we have allowed to take place. We're not to come to the altar in an unholy manner, but rather as we come to receive the elements of communion, we ought to be able to come recognizing that it is only by his grace that he gave us this opportunity. It's only the forgiveness he gave because he was our sacrifice that we were just talking about. But that God expects us to now be transformed because of what he did. My prayer is that each of you walk as those who are redeemed. Let this be a chance for you to renew that covenant with him today if that's not the case. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are grateful for your forgiveness of sins. Today we celebrate your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. We celebrate the fact that you were more than just along for the ride or the experience of humanity. You came. You came to pay the price for our sin. Thank you for being all in for us. As we come before you now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly understand what your sacrifice meant. You paid the price that nobody else could have paid. You were perfect in every way. You never committed sin, but you paid the price of sin for us. We are the ones who deserved death. The wages of sin have always been death. But instead of making us pay that price, you took it upon yourself. Lord, thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. As we partake of these elements today, we know that they're ordinary elements, but they represent something extraordinary. And I pray right now that you would allow this to be a time, not of just ritual, but a time for us to truly reflect on what your gift of salvation means to us. But I pray that you would have your way in us now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we participate in this act of communion uh, or the Lord's Supper, we're going to do it a little different. Sometimes I have other people come and help and today I'm I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to stand up here, and I get to serve each one of you as you come this morning. And I'm not going to tell you which row has to come first. Just be cordial to the other people as you all come forward. Um, if you can, if you can come around through this way, it makes it a little bit easier. But if you got to come through this way, come through this way. It's okay. Um, I invite you to come. Once everyone has received the elements, we'll all partake of it at the same time together. I invite you to come at this time. Thank you.